So in our second half of Ordinary Time this year, we've been doing readings in 1 Corinthians and kind of listening to one side of a phone conversation, you might say, as Paul's dealing with this very ordinary first century church and dealing with the various issues that have come up in their community life together. And now we come to this passage on the gifts of the Spirit. And like many of the other passages we've looked at, there's an underlying issue that we don't see. And that is that amongst the Corinthians, you know, there are these people I've told you about who kind of claim to be super spiritual. And not so much in the way that we would think about being super spiritual today. They had their own brand of this that was very sophisticated, it was very intellectual, and it was very elitist. And these people were claiming to have kinds of spiritual knowledge that other people didn't have. And one of the ways that this was being expressed in the Corinthian church was the overuse of tongues. Now, I don't say that to in any way cast aspersion on this gift of the Spirit that we see lifted, listed here, but this was kind of a classic appeal to this otherworldly language, this otherworldly reality, and Paul's answer to this is, hey, there's a lot more going on in the life of the Spirit than simply speaking in tongues. But let's back up from that. That's, the, that's kind of the background. Uh, but let's, let's maybe spring off that by asking the question, what do you suppose is the kind of life in which functioning in the gifts of the Spirit makes sense? Now, if you've been around a while, you know I've, I've said to you in other settings when we've come to these kinds of texts that I think it best that we not think of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in denominational terms. I mean, that's a, that's a very recent sort of turn-of-the-century thing with turn-of-the-century Pentecostalism or 1970s charismatic renewal or the more recent renewals in the 80s and 90s. Those things are fine, but they're not the best way to think our way into the person and work of the Spirit. And I don't think we want to think our way into it as categories of Christians of who's most spiritual I think a way better way to think our way into this is to just ask, actually ask yourself that question. What do I suppose is the kind of life in which exercising the gifts of the Spirit makes sense? And I, of course, want to suggest an answer, and that is a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. That is to say, when one is like self-consciously trying to develop as a person who's capable increasingly of following Jesus and serving God and others, well, in a life like that, having wisdom becomes really important or getting a gift of knowledge becomes really important or having faith or something becomes really important. That's the kind of life in which these things, I want to say, make sense. So here for me is the fundamental orientation to experiencing the gifts in both holy and fruitful ways. Now, this is a very imaginative idea I want to set before you. And it's Jesus saying, I only do what I see my father doing and only say what I hear him saying. Now, of course, Jesus comes from the eternal counsel of the Holy Trinity and from an intimacy with the father that is indescribable for us. And so he finds himself on earth as the representation of the father. And he says that that relationship we had as the coexisting eternal Trinity, though I am in flesh and a man, that intimacy remains, and I only do what I see my father doing, and I only say what I hear him saying. We, of course, do not come from the eternal counsels of the Trinity, right? So we need a mediator. Who mediates the life of God to us as we seek to mediate the life of God to this world? 
And the answer is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so he gives gifts. And in this passage, interestingly enough, Paul kind of goes back and forth between the word charismata, from which we get, of course, you know, charismatic gifts, and a word that's just like spiritual things or spiritual items, and how God gives these things to the church. And so the reason I want to root this in the notion of apprenticeship is Jesus one time said of himself that doing the will of the Father was food that his friends and those watching him did not know he had. Remember that? I have food that you know not of. It is doing the will of my Father. Now you just think about that for a moment. Let's just play word association. Doing the will of my father, laborious. Doing the will of my father, hard. Doing the will of my father goes against everything in me. Doing the will of my father, I don't know. But Jesus suggests that there's a life available to us in which doing the will of the father is actual nourishment to the human person and that which sustains the human person. Now, if you have that kind of frame of reference, then the point of experiencing the gifts of the Spirit is not to have unusual spiritual feelings, but to be loyal to the risen Jesus who sent the Spirit to enable his calling on our lives. So in receiving and expressing the gifts of the Spirit, we work with God as we minister and serve. Now, another imaginative thing here that I think is really important for us to engage honestly with this text. Paul's a Jew, and he's thinking in faithfully Jewish terms. Likely, he's picturing Genesis 1 and 2. And he's picturing humankind ruling God's good creation and thinking, well, how would they do this? Well, they would probably need wisdom. They would probably need knowledge. They would probably need faith. They would probably need people who had gift of helps. They would probably need leaders. And so God gives this. Perhaps he's thinking of the covenant with Abraham, you know, Genesis 12, and the calling and creation of Israel, who were to be God's sort of cosmic first responders to the places of pain and injury and injustice in the world. Now start thinking in those categories and doing the will of the Father in those categories and suddenly see how the gifts of the Spirit become something that you would naturally covet. Not something that you would naturally be suspicious of because, well, that's what that denomination does or this renewal movement. But see, they become, they, they, they take on a different imaginative and evocative feel if you see them within your apprenticeship to Jesus for the sake of others. Now, all of a sudden, they have a different dynamic to them. So that then the various, Paul's just simply saying here, in the church, as the church does her business in the world, there are various workings of the Spirit in the church. So if you were to ask me, well, you know, Todd, could you give us sort of a, just a nice, tight definition of the gifts? Okay, I'll try. <laughs> the, the gifts of the Spirit are specific supernatural abilities or specific functions that are distributed amongst those who make up the earthly body of Christ. Now, you have to get that because that's the function of Paul's metaphor here. 
that the body of Christ as she meets all over the world this morning, in Iraq and in Lebanon and in China and in Russia and in Latin America and in Africa and here in North America and in Europe, wherever she meets, there the body of Christ is distributed amongst that earthly body of Christ are these gifts in order that every member across the whole world. Now again, just picture Paul thinking of the creation and Abrahamic covenants and seeing the whole world and the whole body of Christ benefiting from these operations of the spirit that God has put amongst the church. I think the last time we talked about the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we tied it kind of tightly to spiritual transformation. That is that we can't do formation apart from community. Like, I need for my formation for some of you to occasionally have a word of wisdom for me. I need the body of Christ to sometimes have a word of knowledge for me because I don't always know what to think. I don't always intuitively know the right way to go. So I need sisters and brothers in a body of Christ who are animated by and energized and operating in the gifts of the Spirit for my formation. Now we've talked about that quite a bit. This morning, I want to show you how gifts get attached to mission. The mission of the church emerges from an interactive relationship with the Holy Spirit that was modeled by the interactivity of Jesus with his Father. And I think what makes this crucial to mission is to see that this interactive relationship is not peripheral or elective or only for the super spiritual, but it's crucial. The church actually cannot be the church in the world or do its tasks as intended in the world without the presence and operation of the gifts of the Spirit. Now, we heard in the gospel reading today, this one of the most out, um, outlandish, outstanding, almost seems crazy sentences in the whole New Testament. Remember, you will do, what did he say? You will do something like I did, but just a smidge. No, there's this crazy sentence. Greater things shall you do. Why, Jesus? Because I go to the Father. Well, what's the big deal about you going to the Father, Jesus? Because if I go to the Father, I will send the Spirit. And the Spirit on this global church, animated and energized and gifted, and to make up a word, infruited by the Spirit, will actually have a greater impact on the earth than what I've had because I go to the Father and because the Spirit will come. This is why it's such a big deal, such a big pivotal point in the New Testament, Luke 24 and others, where Jesus says, look, I'm gonna send you the Holy Spirit as my Father has promised. But so now hear the sort of missional dynamic in this, but stay here in the city until the spirit arrives, until you've been equipped with power from on high because you actually can't go out into the earth and do God's work without a power, listen to this, without a power that matches his intentions. I mean, come on, just think of the problems on the earth today. Just pick one thing like the various evils that underlie our various refugee crises who's going to take on that evil who's going to make any difference when do you know literally right this second all over this globe are people walking away from terror and trying to walk into some place that feels remotely safe right this second in many places in the world this happens all day every day and it has for millennia 
Well, who's going to take that on? Who's going to, you know, be able to make any difference and make some sense of that? And the answer is the spirit equipped, the spirit empowered, the spirit animated people of God. There are, they are God's cosmic first responders. And this is what we see in Acts 2. You know, we read this every Pentecost, you know, that Pentecost was meant to be the moment when the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples, now follow these prepositions. Pentecost is that, again, that major pivotal moment in the scriptures where the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. He breathed into them. He exhaled into them. He blew them up like a balloon and said, now you can go. Pentecost is the mode and the means by which God is putting his power and authority into operation in his people. So now when Paul gets to the problems with this in, in the Corinthian church, he says, you know, as we've heard him say now five or six times, now here's what I want to talk to you about now, right? Like this letter's been a long list of, okay, here's all your problems. Here's what I want to talk about. Here's what I want to talk to you about now. I want to talk to you about the various ways God's spirit gets worked into our lives, and then now, now here's how you can hear him speaking against the super spiritual who were um, overemphasizing the gifts of tongues, where he says, hey, look, there's different kinds of spirits. Sorry, different kinds of gifts. But the same spirit distributes them all. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. And so Paul's trying to sort of do two, well, we read into this a, a theology of the gifts. I, I get that. But can I just say that was not Paul's concern? What, what we're getting here is like the overflow of his concern. His concern is to tamp down the super spiritual to make the whole body matter. Well, how's he doing that? He's saying, look, you super spiritual, all around you are people with, the gift, with gifts of the spirit that are every bit as much a gift as yours is and every bit as important and as powerful as you speaking in an, in, in an angelic language that no one could understand. Now, how did that help the, spirit, the super spiritual? It helped them be elite. How? Because no one could understand what they were doing except for the few other super spiritual. Now, we're lucky in that we now get these great lists of the gifts and stuff, but Paul here is not trying to give us an exhaustive or comprehensive list of the Spirit. Sorry, the gifts of the Spirit. These are illustrative. They're representative of the kinds of workings of the Spirit in the church. And Paul just wants the Corinthian church to know that everybody needs to get in on this and everybody should benefit from it, that there's all kinds of things handed out by the Spirit and all kinds of people and that this variety is wonderful. And then he gives us the list that, you know, this is what this passage is famous for, right? The list, the list of the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul calls these um, manifestations. And this is a beautiful, lovely Greek expression. It's the Greek term phanerosis. And it comes out of the art world, from theater and drama, when they used to have very sophisticated puppets. And phanerosis means the dancing hand of God. And so what Paul's, Paul's borrowing this image and he's picturing the Corinthian church being together like we are and he's seeing this transcendent God by the Spirit moving upon this church as she's both gathered and scattered and as a puppeteer dances his hand and makes the bodies move. This is what the Spirit does in and through the church. 
hovering, brooding over our lives, over the church as we're scattered or gathered. He moves on us. Now I say tongue in cheek that this is not some sort of spiritualized Myers-Briggs. I'm not down on the Myers-Briggs. I'm just saying this is not that. And we must not reduce it to that. Are you feeling me here? You're talking about the third person of Almighty God dancing in the midst of the church. This is not some sort of spiritualized Enneagram, as important as that might be in helping us deal with other aspects of our life. This is Almighty God saying, here, church, you're going to need this, both in your mission to the world and your mission to each other as you foment formation amongst yourselves for the sake of others. You're going to need wisdom. You know, here you can just look at your text, and I'm going to give you very brief little definitions. You're going to need the message of wisdom. That is to say, sometimes you're going to need a Godward, intimate perspective. You're going to need knowledge. That is to say, sort of facts and data and insight and understanding that you can only know by the Spirit. You're going to need faith. Sometimes you're going to need the supernatural conviction that God will reveal his power in some special way in some special instance. You're going to need gifts of healing. Just the common expectation, this messianic expectation that God will heal. Miraculous powers which is sort of all kinds of other supernatural manifestations of God outside of healing or prophecy. Sometimes you're going to need to have a little glimpse of the future. Other times you're just going to need to know God's angle on something that might or might not reveal the future, but it at a minimum reveals the mind and heart of God on a certain topic or event. You're going to need to sometimes distinguish between spirits, that is to say, to be able to discern what's from the spirit of God or from a human spirit or some sort of evil origin. Speaking in tongues, you know, is, is an edifying thing, the Bible says. And sometimes, you know, I love the passage in Romans where just speaking in this um, way that emanates um, from within us by the spirit that transcends the sort of language parts of our brains can be beautiful and edifying. But in public, it requires the interpretation of tongues. And again, this gets back to Paul's real irritation here is that only speaking in tongues was unintelligible. Now follow this. This is the, this is the core logic of this passage. Overemphasizing tongues was unintelligible. You say, so what? Paul would say, edification requires intelligibility. This is what Paul's arguing for, that there has to at least be interpretation of tongues or it can't be edifying. Edification requires, by definition, intelligibility. You're going to need teachers amongst you. If you go down to the last part of the passage, those who instill and instruct and explain and expound the things of God and the word of God, you're going to need those with the gifts of help who come to the aid of another. This is another beautiful word. This is where, you know, we sometimes playfully mock Greek. I get that. But there are some times where the Greek text, just the English can't catch it. And this is, well, this is a beautiful word that literally means take the other side. So if Tom or Beth were helping me, did you hear that? Helping me move the pulpit, Tom? No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> take the other side. This is, this is, see, this is like the gifts of the Spirit aren't weird. That is beautiful. 
You're going to need people who sometimes when you're carrying heavy burdens in your life, you're going to need somebody to take the other side. You're going to need somebody with the gift of helps who can take the other side of your life when you can't bear it alone. You're going to need people with gifts of administration. Again, this is a beautifully evocative word. It, it means literally someone who steers a ship. Like someone who gets it. They get the stars, they get the ship, they get the rudder, they get how this works. They, they know how to take the various aspects of human life and put it together and organize and lead and govern. And lastly, you're going to need apostles. You're going to need people who have vision to start new churches and start new ministries, people who have about them a missionary sense and who raise up new leaders to do that kind of thing. So let me say again, this is not meant to be exhaustive. It's meant to be illustrative of the kinds of things that God does among his people. So picture with me if you can, 1 Corinthians 12, an introduction to the gifts. Remember how uh, verse 31, I don't think we read it, verse 31, first part of 31 ends? And now I will, anybody remember, show you a more excellent or better way. What's that? Oh, 1 Corinthians 13. So 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, and the better way is what? Love. And then he gets back to his topic in chapter 14 of arguing for intelligibility and how prophecy is superior, how prophecy in a sense is the superior, in a sense, Christian gift. But he, again, he doesn't mean that the way we think of it. What Paul's getting at is the reason prophecy is so important is that it, it is intelligible and it is the spirit guiding you. It's not like picking horse races, you know what I mean? Or prophesying who's gonna win the election. It's not that kind of stuff. It's this intimate Godward sort of knowledge that orients the church. And that that kind of power has to be ex, um, expressed in love, willing the good of others, taking the other side to will their good. It's kind of an altruistic edification. It's a selfless concern for the well-being of others. Paul actually thinks so much about what he's saying here that he actually appeals to very radical language, if you think about it. He says, and, and he's actually um, ruminating on his life. So I want you to just feel this with me. He's sitting somewhere. He's writing or dictating this. He's ruminating on his actual life. Now you just think about that. Caught up into the third heaven. Beaten to the point of death, but he lives. You just start thinking of Paul's life. And he reflects on it and he says, I realize now that without love, that is all useless and I am nothing. That is not a beautiful little plaque to put on your wall. That is the actual human contemplation of a genuine human being who had the most transformative spiritual experiences that anybody we know of in the history of humanity. And he says of it, on reflection, if those things are not mediated through me in love, they're worthless, and I am nothing. Now, just begin to picture a community full of genuine love for God and each other in the world, welcoming the presence of the Spirit into that kind of environment, where we're just a bunch of apprentices to Jesus, 
trying to live our lives if he would live them, if he were in our place. Giving ourselves to him in that kind of way, well, suddenly the gifts make all kinds of sense. So why don't we uh, conclude this way? With an invitation into another very evocative, very visionary statement of Jesus. He's standing on the steps of the temple. It's the last day of a great feast. You know, the water pots are around him that have been turned to wine. That, this, is the, this is the environment. This is the, 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 his sort of last words as he, as he stands on sort of, in a sense, this great stage and invites us then to live into this kind of vision. The living waters that Revelation tells us pour forth from the throne of God were seen in the life of Jesus to pour forth through him. And in that moment, I think Jesus gives us the great both personal and communal vision for a, for a life of interactivity with the person and work of the Spirit when he says, and also from you, from your inner being, from your belly, shall come gushing torrents of living water. From you, Jesus said, as it is through my Father, or by my Father, through me. And I think it doesn't have to be said that if there was ever a time on the earth where we could use some living water, it's now. Well, that's not an accident. It doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from opening yourself to the genuine personal work of the Spirit, saying, take my life. Do something with it. So for our quiet time this morning, maybe you can just pray that prayer. It's perhaps the most ancient of all Christian prayers. As Jesus ascends into heaven, those who have heard the promise immediately begin to pray, come Holy Spirit. Maybe you can begin to pray that this morning in this quiet time, asking God to hear callings afresh, to receive gifts afresh, to be filled with love, all for the sake of others.